Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. In today's episode in our series about memory, we'll be hearing about the concept of re-performance. The slightly creepy music you're hearing right now is from Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring, which will be brought up a little bit later as an example of a re-performed work. Now many of you may have seen the same piece of dance or the same play multiple times, perhaps in different theaters and by different performers. It seems like a pretty basic concept. But what exactly about each new performance makes it an authentic representation of the original work? Should something like a battle reenactment be considered an act of re-performance? And what happens when groups attempt to re-perform older works that perhaps have been lost or forgotten? When it comes to the theoretical issues surrounding re-performance, these questions are really just the beginning. And for this reason, this past fall, professors Panel Camp and Christine O'Neill of Washington University in St. Louis organized a symposium based on the topic of reperformance. For today's podcast, we'll be listening to a conversation between O'Neill and Camp about some of the major concepts. Just for some additional context, in the following conversation, Camp and O'Neill bring up the idea of a ballet trust, and a few trusts in particular, the Antony Tudor Ballet Trust, the George Balanchine Trust, and the Jerome Robbins Trust. These organizations work to preserve and recreate the works of specific choreographers. But that comes up a little bit later. To get started, Camp and O'Neill describe the overall concept of re-performance and how it relates to memory. On the one hand, it's very common to reprise dance pieces or to restage a play. How is that distinct from just two subsequent nights of rehearsal mm-hmm. in, uh, in the creation of a piece of theater? And it gets very much into the questions of memory, I think. There are a lot of analogies between memory and performance. Uh, the 20th century philosopher Edmund Husserl wrote a lot about memory and time, and he makes the distinction between uh, retentional memory, the sort of just past moment, right? So when I just said just past that moment for all of us is sort of shrinking back in time. How is that different from remembering something that I did yesterday or said yesterday and starting that anew? And in a way, there might be analogies with performance. In a given production, I think the rehearsal process, certainly to to performers and directors and artists, feels like a continuous thing. But to say, we're going to put this on stage, you know, a piece that we did five years ago, it's a different kind of decision to recreate. I think also interesting to this is the sense that in, in our performance of theater and dance in particular, that the memory of the performer is often what Schechner re- refers to as like restored behavior. You, you want to get to a point as an artist to be able to restore your behavior daily as you perform this and in sub- subsequent performances. And then is there not a value to another student learning that and learning the process 
of restoring that behavior and walking in someone else's shoes, dancing in someone else's shoes, that creates a, as we dancers say, an embodied memory that can expand the constellation of movements that a dancer can perform. So they go from their own personal affinities to choreographic styles, and then thereby broaden who they are as an artist. So in re-performing and remembering and passing that embodied memory on, we have an expansion and elevation of artistry from generation to generation. And I think for me, as, as still a performer, I find that interesting, where, where you can go next, where you can push yourself, and it's not always forward, but it's reaching back and saying, I wanna challenge myself. How many actors do we know take on the great Shakespearean roles to test themselves? We stand on those artists' shoulders, and, and we should honor that and learn from them. So I, I think for me, and I think panel and I have talked about that, that, that that's an important educational element that we want to continue to to remember that's a part of re-performance. I think it's a very interesting question what the relationship would be to uh, a monument or a statue mm. or a uh, ceremony that's designed to carry forward memory, carry forward a kind of experience of an event, and re-performance practice, which uh, it, at least tells itself that it is directly bringing that thing forward, right? Mm -hmm. When you think about mm -hmm. a monument that commemorates, you know, a war or a tragedy or a victory or a, a person's life, the monument, we don't think of it as the person, um, but there's something about the logic of curating works of performance art, of repeating uh, uh, works of choreography, which is that we're keeping this thing alive. When we speak of the way that a monument, like the Twin Towers monument, keeps an event alive, we perhaps would think that we are speaking in terms of metaphor. But there's a way in which performance, uh, re-performance is a deliberate attempt to defy the, the normal process of time. So that, yeah, and I, I agree with panel that for the artist and also for the audience, that these works or these moments in theater don't just become a memory or something that you read on a page about that it's actually live again. Theater and dance, perhaps with music even, they don't sit in a museum where you can go by between nine and five and see it all the time. It has to be in live performance. Well, then what does that, uh, what are the components of that that make it authentic or real? in the memories of the audience, in the memories of the musicians, the dancers, the actors. The additional question which I like is what is preserved? What is the essence of the work in the memory of, of the choreographer, in the memory of the dancers, in the embodied memory of the dancers? So we see in plays often the script is there, but the setting has changed, the costume has changed, the look has changed, the lighting has changed. Well, is it still Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet because it's the script? Well, in ballet, we only have the steps. So is it the steps that have to remain the same? Well, if you change the period of time, doesn't that relate then to the storyline? And then you have uh, choreographers that reproduce their own d versions of the same ballet. Antony Tudor, who I study, is notorious for changing slightly his choreography, if it was for film, uh, 
for a different stage. So the question then is, what is the authentic version if there's three or four versions? And that's why the trust relies on their professionals called the repetitors who actually do the restaging to ferret out what is the original. And they're constantly looking at videos and, and questioning their own memory uh, about what was originally done and peeling that apart to see what was the original gesture, how was the timing of that. What, what Christine has brought up of this question that fascinates her, what is the, what's preserved, what's reproduced, is uh, at the heart of an ongoing theoretical dispute or argument in performance studies, which is what's the, what is the essence of performance itself? Uh, one side of this argument that would suggest that performance is defined by its uh, need to disappear, its ephemeral status, and that that is in fact one of the special things about it, and that that's what makes it difficult to commodify, that it's, you know, performance isn't lying around to then be easily, you know, manufactured mm-hmm. and copied. And then there is another side of this, uh, another way of looking at this that argues that we shouldn't be so quick to say that performance in its essence disappears, that there are ways in which performance endures, that we are are aware of and surrounded by that we don't necessarily acknowledge. Paul Connerton wrote a famous book called How Societies Remember, where he talks about not just events like ceremonies that mark a historical event, but that um, all sorts of bodily habits, ways of carrying the body, posture, handwriting, handshakes, that there's all sorts of gestures that are essentially passed from one person to another, you can think of those practices as a form of performance that is constantly reproduced. There's a sort of theoretical tradition of looking at that and arguing over that, Um, but increasingly institutions are dedicating resources to the idea that you can preserve performance. So we have the Joffrey uh, recreating Nijinsky's Sacre du Pratam out of very little information, having to go through five continents, different libraries to piece together materials. Well, that's not what the Tudor Trust does or the Jerome Robbins Trust does or Balanchine's Trust. They have the information and that's what they don't want to have happen to all those choreographers' works. They don't want to let them go so far that they have to re-piece them together. And, And I think that that's a different dynamic for even the dancer, the actor, going into a role where there isn't much information about what's been done versus a play that's been known for so long recreating that role and recreating a history and lineage of performance. So you mentioned that re-performance has become kind of a hot-button issue in recent years that a lot of theorists are talking about. Do you have any theories of your own as why that might be the case? Why it's important now? Well, there's a there's a, there is the sort of generational pattern when I, I think when a mm-hmm. when a choreographer or a or a, a performer comes to the end of their career or their life, there's I think a desire to at that moment invest in the project a sort of project of memory. In a way, there's a kind of I don't know maybe a nostalgia or a melancholy that that motivates that. In terms of the uh, the performance art side of things, it's it's difficult to tell. There's a similar, I think, sort of generational moment where the 1960s and 70s are being looked at as something yeah. uh, that's that's relevant again. But I think that's one of the most fascinating questions. We're surrounded by civil war reenactments at this moment because of a sort of you know rhythm in history that causes us to think about things every 50 or 100 years. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because it's it, it seems to be so different from music and opera that reproduce all the time. I mean, you do get periodically a new opera. I mean, you do. I'm not a student of it. 
But how many times do you see, if you read, say, the New York Times and what, what is coming out in New York, those are all reproductions of musical Mozart, Tchaikovsky. They, they are reproducing every concert. And yet we find it monumental that we should reperform a work from the 20th century. I think as a, a genre pushes the boundaries, those artists are not necessarily looking at reperforming from the past because they're creating the future. But at some point, they will be the past, and it is how their work is then either transmitted and transferred to the next generation or lost. And I think once you get an artist who begins to consider that, the idea of reperformance settles in. So perhaps performance studies as a study is just old enough, mature enough, and has some history that it's now thinking back at what should be brought forward. What can we bring forward? What is important? And I think that that kind of relationship between the, the, the creating of the new and bringing your history is where reperformance lies. Many thanks to Dr. Panel Camp and to Christine O'Neill for contributing to Hold That Thought. Dr. Camp is Assistant Professor of Drama, and Christine O'Neill is Professor of the Practice in Dance, both at Washington University in St. Louis. For more topics to explore, be sure to visit Hold That Thought online at thought.artsci.wustl.edu. That's thought.artsci.wustl.edu.